Hello everyone, I'm Kevin Miller and this is The Ziggler Show, where our goal is to inspire your true performance. In this episode, what is the value of hope, even when death is certain? So what do you have hope in, real hope based on actual expectations? Do you have hope that drives you to get out of bed, make progress toward your desires and withstand the hardships of life? Well, in this show, I bring you a guest who is a neurosurgeon, yes, a brain surgeon, the top guns amongst medical doctors, Dr. Lee Warren. He brings us stories of terminal patients and brain tumors with a near 100% fatality rate, yet he cites from his daily experiences walking through the traumas and tragedies of humanity that hopelessness is even far more deadly, which sounds preposterous. How can one even have hope amongst certain death. Well, in this show, you will hear how and why hope is so vital, necessary, and possible for all of us, no matter our circumstances. But let me forewarn you, this is not remotely some formulaic show on hope. It's a deep and vulnerable dive filled with as much recognition of mystery and heartbreak as it is hope and help. Dr. Warren, he's an Iraq war veteran who performed more than 200 surgeries in a tent hospital. From then until this day, he performs surgeries surgeries on everything from tumors uh, to head wounds. He's daily amongst despair and death and hope and healing, family tragedies and triumphs. And amongst it all, he's also lost his 19-year-old son and had to deal with his own grief and faith. His new book is called I've Seen the End of You, and it chronicles the stories of some of the patients who just really rocked his faith. And let me say this, I study the books of every guest I have on the show, of course, but I don't always read them word for word from front cover to the end. This one was like a novel that I kept wondering what's going to happen next. And I read it cover to cover. I've shared it with my friends and family and my family keeps passing it around and everybody's going through the book just rapidly. It's just incredible. Now I'm going to share it with you. If you have ever, ever pondered your faith, please listen to this show. And if you want a book that will keep you enthralled and quite possibly give you a new perspective on your personal faith, go check out. I've seen the end of you, wherever you get books, you can pre-order now as it actually comes out January 7th, 2019. You can also connect with Dr. Warren at W Lee, L E E Warren, md.com and make sure you check out the dr lee warren podcast so i'm going to bring you dr warren right after i share some great products and services with you all right let's see i actually asked my 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 doctor partner here how to pronounce this glioblastoma multiforme did i get it right yeah or people say multiform multiform okay all right well i was trying to be politically correct on that one, or at least verbally correct. Well, GBM, I know is what you refer to it. So a brain tumor that you, of course, as you lead off in the book, it's almost a hundred percent fatal. How many of those surgeries do you think you've done now, Lee? Oh, I don't know. Three, 400, several hundred. Goodness. Okay. And you know, in removing this tumor, uh, you give, of course, as I read in the book, you give the patient more time. Uh, time to let them and their family come to grips with this pending death, uh, generally, to put their affairs in order. And of course, in the book, you share the emotional aspect, the faith struggle and knowing that they're likely going to die. And as you showcase, it's, I don't know if you give it a stat, but it seems like it's about 99.9% of the time. And we're going to get into that more, but from a job aspect, I was interested that every time you perform this surgery, and this is your, your job, you do your job and you do a good job yet realizing it's not going to be success. If you were a mechanic, that'd be really bad odds of fixing the car and realizing that. And outside of the emotional and the faith issue that we're going to talk about, even that, have you found that? I mean, is that, have you come to grips with that? Is it sometimes demoralizing to know that this effort, this expense is generally not going to do, it's going to give them time again, which is, is maybe that's the biggest, maybe that's the biggest value, but still a little daunting. It is. um, You know, the thing is we, we talk a lot about what what's the goalpost that you're shooting at, you yeah. know, the target and the in glioblastoma and in diseases that are known to be generally fatal. The the target is not a cure. Hmm. The target is can I establish a diagnosis? Can I preserve quality of life, neurologic function, um, the patient's ability to communicate and, and live their life with their family for as long as they possibly can? Yeah. And so we know that 
without the surgery, they have a a lot shorter lifespan, a much higher complication rate. So we find ways to sort of adjust our own expectations and help our patients understand what their, you know, what the plan is and what the purpose of the procedure is. And what is the general timeline that they get from you perform the surgery? What is the average length of their lifespan at that point? So statistically speaking, and this has held up for about the last 40 years with this disease, um, people that have a glioblastoma that can't be mostly removed, um, if you can really just only biopsy it and treat it with radiation and and chemotherapy, they tend to have about 12 months. Um, People that you can, the tumor's in a safer location and we can get most of it out with surgery, and then they go on to have radiation chemo, they have 15 to 18 months median survival. Goodness. When was the last one that you did? How long ago? Uh, last week, last week. And how do you, again, same, same thing. Do you feel as normal? You see the end of them. Where's, what would you say their status is right now? Emotionally? Um, that patient's uh, doing well clinically. Um, well, Leah, you know, I'm sure you're affected of course by every patient you deal with. Um, but your book highlights, I mean, as you, as you're going about and doing, whether it's at GBM or, or otherwise, the surgeries you're doing, the people you're in contact with, but in the book, you're highlighting these, gosh, I don't know if I, these highlight stories in a sense of the people who resonated with your heart and, uh, you know, in that where are there some, yeah, being HIPAA compliant here, but, uh, are there some recently that with an anonymous name that you could say, oh my gosh, they left a footprint on you. If they had happened prior to you writing the book, they probably would have made it in the book. We made it into the book. Yeah, I made it into the book. Yeah. You know, there, every, every patient's story is unique and different. And the ones that move me the most um, are the people who they encountered this really hard thing that in a lot of cases would create hopelessness and despair, but yeah. they encounter it in a way that, that makes me question myself and say, wow, would I have held up as well as they did? Yeah. That hard thing. Or the people whose families seem to rally around them and they seem to get stronger while they're getting sicker. Um, and so I've had several of those recently that were just really inspiring people who seem to, they, they didn't beat the odds of survival, but they beat the odds of, uh, overcoming hopelessness. Yeah. Well, and hopelessness, I think will be the thread of this, but you know, in reading the book and as I told you, I have a son who had, I guess three brain surgeries. And so it, it was wow. just incredible. He, he, and he's reading the book, uh, rapidly right now. Just really, it means a lot, uh, to him. And it just ma- gave me some of these the tangible questions about what you do. And, you know, I have a friend that works at Stanford out in California. He's a clinical social worker. Uh, he does family guidance and bereavement. He's been doing it for a long, long time. And, uh, so much trauma. And on one hand, it, it's made him who he is today. He's an incredible guy of, of faith and, and insight and compassion. Probably compassion is probably at the top of the, of the list. But then he's also talked about, and I thought about this in regards to you, how much of a toll it has taken on him emotionally uh, and right. even, even physically. And I wondered with that as much as, of course, this has bolstered your, your faith that we're going to talk about here. Uh, how has that played out with you? Just looking at the, the toll that it's taken on you to see so much of this in-depth trauma and grief. I think that the greatest advantage I had over the bulk of my career is that my wife, Lisa and I worked together and ran our practice together. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of my colleagues, they, they don't take their work home because it's something that you can't really explain to somebody else that yeah. what you're feeling. Right. But Lisa and I were, living those patient experiences together. And so, um, I had an ally in the, in the fight who understood it and who had was also going through it. So I think for me, I, I never, I never got to that place where I felt like I was, things were futile or, or that I wasn't making a difference because I always had her perspective there to help me see that we were helping these folks and, and, you know, Oh, by the way, so-and-so dropped by the office today and, and they were, they're doing great. And they said to thank you. And, you know, so we had this, this thing at home 
that helped us deal with what we were handling at work. And that really has helped me tremendously. And that stood out in the book to me because, uh, I mean, you, you know, we, we hear so often of people in the workplace, especially those dealing with, I had somebody recently talked uh, about uh, on the show about just the complexities and the gravity of their work that was so hard to translate at home. They felt like it literally disconnected them. They didn't know, uh, and they, they talked about this, the struggle that they had to, you know, this day in being able to take that hat off for one and then feeling like it's just, there's so much, there's no way I can come in and relate it. And so they just felt that void. So for you not to have that, yeah, what a unbelievably unique place that puts you in. Right. It's been a great blessing. Well, you know, hope talking about, you talked about hopelessness just a minute ago. I mean, hope and faith to to some degree, we can use those interchangeably, but you're seeing it again, back to the trauma. You're seeing it where the rubber hits the road, life and death situations, which few of us ever see, uh, to, to any great degree. Everyone is going about their lives. Just like the folks listening to this show right now, people are tens of thousands will be listening to it, going to work, running on a treadmill, cooking in the kitchen, whatever, just like me, I'm doing here, doing my job. And maybe their faith is tangible, something they devoutly pursue. Maybe it's on the fringes, but now again, you're in your practice and, and just like uh, somebody that you did the GBM, um, surgery for recently, they now have this critical diagnosis and how do you see people's faith play out in regards almost timeline wise? Is it something where right then the, the, the rubber hits the road, the crap hits the fan, whatever, and their faith is going to come to fruition right then and there and help or hurt them? Or is it generally a process that now they're going to dive into the depths of where their faith really resides? Right. You know, it's interesting that you, that you asked that I, as a scientist, right. As a, as a person who kind of grew up in the science world and also as a person of faith, I've, I've, I was studying these people sort of scientifically as I encountered them in my career, because my, as I tell the story in the book, my, my heart had this problem of saying, you know, looking at a scan before I've ever met the patient and saying, boy, that's going to be a glioblastoma. And I've seen the end of you. I know what's going to happen to you. Yeah. Right. So in my mind, I would project out this path that the patient was going to take in their physical fight. What I didn't understand as I, as I thought I knew a lot about this disease was that there are multiple ways really that people encounter and grapple with hard things that they face. And, and I sort of, sort of filtered them out into four groups that I've seen okay. over time. And the first one is, is what you might call a crasher, you know, that they, they go along and their life's been pretty good. They haven't really had a lot of trouble and they hear me say, you have brain cancer. And they were like, that stuff doesn't happen to me that, that those things don't occur in my life, you know, and then boom, they're in the pit of despair, right? Um, they're at the, at the bottom. Oh. And then there's another group that I, I might call climbers that they're sort of a, um, in the book, a guy like Joey that I told the story yeah. of, they'd never had any relationship with God. They've never had good things happen in their life. His story was terrible. He, you know, his dad left him, his mom died. He was in drugs and alcohol and he had all kinds of problems throughout his life. And he almost expected me to say he had cancer, right? Those people, life has been one stream of trouble for them. So they almost expect it to be bad. And when it is bad, it doesn't surprise them. So their, their faith is in the dumps and it stays in the dumps. And then there's another group that they understand they have perspective. Maybe they've been through something hard before. Maybe they've got a good faith, but something hard happens and it, and it knocks them down for a little bit. And then somehow they're able to rally and, and re- reconnect with their faith or their family and come back. And then there's the other group that seems to be unaffected, indefatigably. Nothing, nothing that happens to them shakes them at all. And I started wondering what separates all those people, yeah. right? So that if the first event is your diagnosis and that changes the arc of your, of your hope, if you will, or your faith, what's the second event? And, and the second event is, is something that creates hope or something that shows them light again. And so for, um, for a guy like Joey, you know, he's, he's dying. He's losing the fight with his disease. He's never had any kind of hope in his life. And all of a sudden his grandmother and pastor, kind of rally around him and they keep telling him that they love him no matter what. Yeah. He's never heard that before. Right. He's never felt that before. And so all of a sudden he's got 
this idea that he's lovable and that even if he doesn't survive, his life could mean something, even though now the end of it is a lot closer than it used to be in his mind. And this, and so this thing that turned him around was this notion that, that there was other things to hope for other than length of life. Right. So I've seen that in, in people. And, and it seems like that second event, if it doesn't happen, that thing that opens the door to believe that lights out there, even if you can't see it yet, that's the thing that separates people who survive emotionally and people who don't. And I've really been stunned to learn over these years that there are people whose lives get better, even if they die and people whose lives get worse, even if they survive. So there's this group of people who things crash for them. And even if they recover from their disease, they become bitter and they're angry that it happened to them or it broke up their marriage or, you know, they might survive the tumor, but they don't survive the hopelessness. Right. Yeah. Where would you put yourself? You just said the, the four people, where would you put yourself? Cause I know you question that in the book, wondering how would you deal with it if you got the diagnosis, but then you did have, your tragedy with your son, Mitch dying at 19 years old. And how long has that been now? Six years. He died in 2013, 2013. At that point, where would you put yourself there in the four? So before that happened, um, I thought I was, you know, I was raised in in a church and and had a faith and, and taught our kids to believe in God. And, and I was, I was having questions as I saw people encounter all these hard things. And, and I was, I was grappling with some of those things, but I thought I would handle it well if something did happen to me. I I wondered, but I, but I figured I would be okay. And then when something bad did happen, when our son died, um, to be honest with you, like for a little while, I felt either that God wasn't real or that he was really a jerk. I mean, I, I, um, the, the ironic thing about it was we had had, you know, we'd had kind of a, a difficult relationship with Mitch for a while as, as we many parents do with their adolescent kids and struggling with some things, but, but things had seemed to turn around. And, you know, even the day before he died, he had called me and said, dad, I'm, yeah. I'm coming home. I'm ready to go back to school. I'm sorry for the way things have been. And I love you. And, 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 and just that morning we'd been in the, or the morning that he died that the next day um, we'd been in a 21 days of prayer event with our church and the youth pastor led that service on Tuesday morning of that August and prayed for the kids. And we were in, you know, Lisa and I both on our knees, like praying for all five of our kids and, and really had this great sense of hope that, that things were turning around with Mitch and that very evening is when he died. And so for me, it was like, God, what was all that about? Like, what, why did it happen the day the youth pastor was praying for the kids and the day after he called after almost, you know, several months of not talking to us? Like, why did you let us have that little bit of what felt like a reprieve, right? And it was all going to be okay. And then it, it seemed even more unsurvivable at that point. So it took us a while to, um, to, to sort of decide if we were going to believe or not. And then what, what came down for me was, that the alternative of there not being a good God out there was worse than God just not turning out to be what I thought he had been. Yeah. And as it turned out, you know, he was more than I thought he had been because he actually proved himself true to all the promises. Like, like God is close to the brokenhearted that turned out to be true for us. We just had to be still enough to listen and feel it. And so for me, I, I thought I would be the guy that stayed strong and it turned out to be the the dipper the guy that went down pretty low and, and then found hope again and came back yeah you are listening to the ziggler show and next i asked dr warren about the question we've all asked or heard how can a good god let tragedy happen and how his own answer has changed since dealing with the tragic death of his son so we'll be right back to that after i share some great products and services with you how has that consummate question that comes from people. How can a good God let some a tragedy like this happen? How has your, because I assume you got, you, you must get that question uh, fairly frequently and doing what you do. And how has your answer changed from before Mitch uh, to today after you going through that same thing? And it, obviously that gives you more, that sounds bad, but it gives you more credibility that you have done that. You experienced that. Now you can relate to that, but how's the answer changed? Well, you know, 
I used to say, well, it's all about perspective. You know, we have to have this eternal perspective and all the Christian platitudes that we say. And, and if we really believe that life is short, but eternity is forever and God's got a plan and all those things, then, then we have to just be able to understand that, that life is hard and we can't always know everything. And that's how I would sort of frame it before. But as we were walking through it, I came to the place where I had to understand that, you know, we were never promised a life without trouble. In fact, we were promised the opposite. Jesus said it himself. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, right? And the same Jesus that said, I've come, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy your life. I'm here that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so the same Jesus that said those two things also says that there will be a resurrection and that someday we'll get to, we'll get to be united with our loved ones in him again. And so for us, it came to, if, if any one of those promises isn't true, then we are utterly hopeless. And so if one of them is true though, because, because God says that all scripture is true and that all of it's impossible for him to tell a lie, then all those promises do have to be true. And so there, if they are all true, then the ones that seem hard on the surface like in this world, you're going to have trouble are balanced and exceeded by the ones that seem comforting. God is close to the brokenhearted. All things somehow work together for good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and if there's no resurrection, then we're above all men to be pitied, right? So because there is a resurrection. And so for me, it came down to saying it, it is utterly hopeless if there's not a God who's going to redeem this some way, somehow. And you don't choose what you believe because it sounds better. You choose it because you really believe it. But for me, it came down to, I believe that I'm going to see my son again. And as my friend Gordon Livingston said, and he, he lost two sons in 13 months. So he's got even, if, if my credibility is something, his has to be exponentially more because he got to the place where he could say that what passed for hope for him was this belief that he would get to see his sons again someday. And so for me, it was that past for hope that in a time when I didn't feel hope, I had to believe that someday I would again be able to feel hope. When I didn't feel faith, I knew that if I kept reading and studying and praying and crying out to God, that he was going to let me feel some faith again someday. And he did. You just mentioned the scripture, you know, uh, that we often hear often errantly uh, in the shortened version, God can, God will work all things uh, to good dot, dot, dot. So I, I pulled that out of the book. You had the chaplain that you cite in the, in the book who said the purpose told you in a hard time, the purpose of prayer isn't to bend God's will to ours. The purpose of prayer is to bend us to God's will. And as you relate this in the book that that didn't sit well with you when he said that, and that brought you guys right into talking about, you mentioned that scripture got to work on. And he uh, got pretty stern there. G- give us a snapshot of that that message in the book. Well, it, it, everybody has everybody who knows what Romans eight twenty eight says. Everybody tends to take that and and apply it to the to the idea that God will turn everything into something good mm-hmm. if you love Him. So you know you you lose your job. God's going to make something good out of it. It'll be okay. We platitude. We we bring these platitudes and pat each other on the back with those ideas. And so I sort of jumped on Pastor John and said, no, now you're going to tell me that everything's going to be okay, right? Everything's going to work together for good. You're going to pull that out on me. And he said, that's not what it says. It doesn't say that God will make everything good. It says he will work everything together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the next verse basically says to make you more like Jesus. And so if you look at Jesus, Jesus is a guy who lived a, a perfect life and then got nailed to a tree you know, to be thanked for it, basically. He got killed for being a good, perfect person, right? And that wasn't good for him. I mean, he died, and he went through all that pain. But it was worked for good for everybody who loves him, oh. right? Because it, re- it gave us a chance to be redeemed. And so in your life, the way I, the way I came to understand it, is that if if the hard circumstances of your life can point you towards being more like somebody who was able to navigate this life in a way that that got him through it in a really perfect way, then if those hard things can be redeemed to make me more like him, then I'll be able to to be more effective in my ministry and in my work. I'll be able to be more 
compassionate towards other people in my family and other people around me when they're struggling. And I'll be able to be more faithful when I'm encountering hard things the next time they come around, because I'll say, you know what? And with the time and, and light and some perspective on this, I can look back now and I can say, I am a better father than I was six years ago. I'm a better husband. I'm a better doctor. Um, I've affected lives that I wouldn't have affected in the same way if I didn't understand other people's grief because of understanding mine. So those are good things that came out of something that is not good. So it's, it's not true to say that Romans 8, 28 said, if your son dies, God can make that good. Mm -hmm. That's not what it says. It says that God can redeem it in a way that, that allows some good to come through it. And, And that really means a lot to me. And it has to, because if there's no redeeming it, then there's no way to understand. There's no way to say that his life had any value if it's just about a bad thing happening, but his life had value and continues to help serve other people because we've learned how to use it and, and, and make good things come of it. Well, and this is a, you know, a question that I, or a perspective, I guess, that I'm not even sure how to ask. I mean, doing what you do, I can't fathom it without the faith that you have. It would seem so, especially in these cases of GBM where you know that there's the greatest chance that they are not going to make it. It would seem so futile. I mean, do you look at that? Do you look at other, your peers, other docs doing that who do not have a faith and wonder how are they able to, how are they able to withstand it? Or do you feel like they just have to, uh, in, in some degrees, harden themselves against it? I do. Um, and I've, I've been blessed, I think, to work around a number of people who don't believe. And I say blessed because I, I think it gives me some perspective to understand that we're not the only ones that have the ability to have a quality life and, and to enjoy our work and find meaning and purpose in life. I, b- I believe you can feel those things even if you don't have a faith. But what I, I think the difference is, to me, when life is over, when my physical life is over, my real purpose begins then. Yeah. Right? I believe that this is an eternal thing that, that has meaning and value beyond the days that I'm drawing breath. And I've never been able to wrap my mind around the idea that just living this life well is enough. I feel a void when I think that way. So I've seen a lot of physicians who don't have a faith and don't have a belief that are more prone, I think, to burnout and more prone to um, surrogates for hopelessness, like drinking too much or having, having other things that they use to pacify their, um, their wondering what it's all about because it ends at a certain point for them, right? It's a cold, it's a cold ending. And so I, I'm not going to say that all of them feel that way because I have some friends who are atheists that really seem to have a very um, solid emotional life and they seem to be um, full of joy and that like they don't have any trouble with the idea that it's all over when it's over. But I've seen the flip side of that too. And, and I think if you have a real faith, then your life is, is your life on this earth is part of your story, but it's not the whole story. You, you know, I want to, and when I ask about faith and you said you, you categorize people into four areas and the number one was the crasher, people who hadn't had trouble. So here's my testimony. One of mine to you is this past Sunday and this morning, because obviously the book's on my mind, uh, having read it now, my, my, again, my son's reading it in my devotions with my kids Sunday, it was with my three oldest boys. And this morning it was with them and then uh, three of my other kids, younger kids. And this came up in relation to, you know, scripture we were taught, we, we were reading. And then a topic we were talking about the aspect, I'm going to use the word gravity that they have lived a, and they know it a privileged life. And I don't say that in a negative way towards them. I mean, I'm not going to go make things hard on them for hard sake, but they have lived a, privileged life. They have not had this. Well, except for my oldest, who's gone through his, his surgeries. He's had, he has had a road, but the rest of them have. And that it's, I don't know. It would be, it's an interesting question. When you look at that, if, if, if something happens, if the trauma happens, which 
lifetime, it is going to. I have nine kids and now grandkids. And at some point, the odds are something's going to happen. How am I going to prepare for that? Because I have not dealt with a lot of trauma. I'm not one of these people who's been through the fire in that sense. So how am I going to do that? And as I look at my kids and go, how are they going to do that? We talked real blatantly. So you guys, you could, you could lose me today or mommy today or both of us or, and things would drastically change. This is why you are pursuing your faith now. And they get it intellectually. I feel really inadequate to bring it much further than that. Uh, and I don't know, that's, that's a big, big thing to throw at you, but you know, looking at you, how, how would you, and looking at that and how massive it is in regards to how people respond and how resilient they are. That's a big buzzword these days is resilience, right? Uh, how would you speak to us? Those of us who maybe have not, and, and, and talking not only for us, but for our kids, how do you raise up that gravity? How do you make the faith real enough to where when it does happen, when it hasn't before, they can ride it out well. Right. I, I think the first thing is, and I, and I write about this a lot in my in my newsletter and in my my sort of aim with the things I write about when I'm not writing books is this thing I kind of jokingly call self brain surgery. Right. This this notion that you have to change your mind about things mm-hmm. before you can really change your life. And and the one mindset shift that I think is the most helpful is to just be aware and be thoughtful of the fact that your life has a timestamp on it, right? And most of us sort of project that out so far, especially when we're young, it, it becomes almost infinite. Like I'm going to live forever, right? But but if you start with yourself and you say, how many 200-year-old people have you ever met? Yeah. Zero. How many 150-year-old How many 100-year-old people? Maybe a couple. How many 90-year-old people? 10 or 12. And you keep backing that up. You, you start to realize none of those People that didn't make it to 80 thought they weren't going to make it to 80, yeah. right? So every every life has a timestamp on it. And so the first thing is you recognize I don't get to pick the number of my days. And so therefore, I better pick the quality of my days, hmm. right? So if I'm going to say I'm going to change my mind about one thing that will make a difference in my quality of life, no matter what circumstances come along, then it's going to be that I'm going to make this day the best day I can make it, even if I find out today that my son died, or even if I find out today that I've got brain cancer, or even if I find out today that the bank account's empty or you know, whatever. So, so the first thing is tell your kids, tell your family to just start being aware that hard things happen in life, even yeah. if they've never happened to you or your family yet. Yeah. They do happen and they happen to good people and they happen to normal people and they happen to your next door neighbor and, and just be aware that that's a reality. Because one of the things that I think hits people the hardest is when something happens to them and they've never in their, it just blows their mind that this could happen to them. Yeah. Right. So I think that's the first thing. Second thing is anytime you're going to go through something in your life, anytime you're going to go through life, like if you're going to go out and change the tire on your car, there's a set of tools that you need to do that thing with, right? You need a jack and a, and a you know, lug nut wrench and all that stuff. There's tools that you need. And so I, I talk to my people and my family about there's, there's brain surgery tools that you need too. And the biggest one is something I call a thought biopsy. Um, this idea that every thought that pops into your head isn't true, right? We get all these little thoughts in our head and some of them are negative and, and we especially are prone to them when something bad happens, when, when your wife leaves you or you get fired from your job, you start hearing all these thoughts. I'm unlovable. I'm unhirable. This will never be okay again. I can't bounce back from this. And, and so if you go into life aware that these hard things can happen and that when they do, your brain chemistry is going to make it as negative as it can be. And it's going to make it as hopeless as it can be that you have some ability to fix that and do surgery on your brain by changing how you think about it. I think Zig Ziglar would have something to say. About Absolutely. That. I love the thought how, biopsy statement. Yeah. How you think changes how you live, yeah. right? It changes how you interact with other people. It changes the steps that you take. It changes your brain chemistry in positive and negative ways. That's why Paul, who wasn't a neuroscientist, as far as I know, apostle Paul right. said, whatever's lovely and pure and noble and good. Think about that stuff. Right? So when your son dies, you start saying, 
I must have been a terrible dad. I, I did all these things wrong. What could I have done differently? How could we have fixed that? What will what, happen now? Are other kids in danger now? Like you, all of a sudden it's possible for one of your kids to die. So you start not letting your high school kid go out because you don't, you want to protect her, right? You, you don't want her to go off to college. You want her to stay close. Like all of a sudden it's like you're in danger mode and you have to at some point step back and say, wait a second, time out. The thoughts I'm thinking they're all negative and they're not all true. So my daughter still needs to have a life and I still have all these other amazing kids and yeah. I've got a grandchild and I've got a life that does have value. And you know what? My son did have a good life and he did love me and he knew I loved him. And you start rebuilding those thought processes. And then before you know it, you start taking steps back into your life again. Right? So changing how you think is the first step to, changing how you live. So change your brain, change your life. Daniel Amen says, my, my old friend, the psychiatrist, I say it, you can't change your life until you change your mind. You got you to change your thought process. And the first thing is understanding that the thoughts you're thinking aren't always true. Yeah. Right? So that's just one of those tools that I'm talking about. So the idea is if you're, if you're saying, how do you handle preparing yourself for the hard things that happen in life? The first one is being aware that they will come. Yeah. Because no matter what, you can't put yourself in a big enough bubble to keep yourself from having some trouble. Because even if you're in a perfect bubble, you still have a body that's going to wear out and die someday, right? Yeah. And it's hard to it's hard to say that stuff without sounding like you're being fatalistic or negative or any of those things. But because especially Christians and some of us that are from certain traditions have this idea that if you have enough faith, you know, nothing bad can happen to you or that you can demand that God give you certain things or, yeah. you know, name it and claim it or, you know, all those kinds of things. And I'm just going to say, I think that's a heresy. I, I think it's, it, it's, it's incorrect theology because Jesus himself said, you're going to have hard times in your life. Yeah. Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he couldn't pray away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Right. And as far as I know, at least 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith, but they had a whole lot of faith. Yeah. Right. So the Bible, I don't think tells us that we're going to have a, a pain-free life if we just have enough faith. And I think that presupposes us to have a lot of trouble if we think that it does say that. Because one of the hardest things for me as a dad who believed that everything was always going to be okay when my son wasn't okay was for me to say, this is a dirty trick. None of the stuff I thought was real is real. None of the things I thought about God were really true. And that's a negative thought that yeah. is a lie from the devil who wants you to feel despair and hopelessness. Because when you are in despair and hopelessness, you can't help anybody else. This is a, so just recently, uh, and folks listening to show 735, I interviewed Mark Batterson, oh. well-known pastor. He has a new book uh, called Double Blessings. And in that, he even talked, so we're talking about the, the bad, you know, the hard things that, that are going to happen at some point that he even talked about on the blessing side that with God's blessings come complications. Sure. And I, I, I really appreciated that. And to what you're talking about, the thing that I keep, I continue to come back to yeah, in talking with my kids and talking with my peers and in thinking for myself that it's so arrogant to expect that the bad things will not happen. Uh, and so this topic is so, that's why it's so acute to me. That's one of the reasons we're here doing this is because right. I know it is going to happen. And it's so, um, it's almost mind blowing to me how you deal with this daily, um, in people's lives. I, what a special person it takes. I'm grateful for God's anointing on you. I, I really like your line. You can't pick the number of days, but you can pick the quality. It kind of goes to that live every day like it's your last day, which is an impossible statement to walk out. But that puts a tangible, viable aspect on it of, again, back to that word of the gravity. You know, you mentioned this. I don't know if I would have asked it otherwise, but some of the, you didn't use the word regrets, but some of the questions that people do in retrospect, and you talked about your son, you know, with Mitch, if I can ask, do you look back even in your own uh, peace and, and reconciling that and look back and go, there are some things I wish I would have done. What would you take? I mean, that's the consummate question you'd ask somebody who's gone through something like that. Okay. I've got kids. What is that thing or two things, or even if it's a specific thing towards Mitch, you go, man, if I, I, I do wish I would have been able to do X or would have been able to impart X or whatever it may be. 
Well, I think the biggest thing for me is if I'm confessing my own sins is a lack of balance in my work personal mm-hmm. life and those years when my kids were growing up and um you know lisa and i ran our own practice and it was a solo practice meaning that i was the only neurosurgeon in the practice but also in the town so in in alabama where we lived there wasn't another neurosurgeon in about a 50 or 60 mile circle and so there was an a, a limitless amount of work to be done people who were hurting and people who were sick and people who were in pain and and in my quest to build a good life for my family i I never said no to anybody and Mm -hmm. and i worked too much and so although you can't things can be simultaneously true but not causative of one another right you can it can be true that you had bad balance and it can be true that one of your kids had some trouble but that doesn't necessarily mean the one thing caused the other thing um, but I know that I, 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 re, I wish I had spent more time not working. Yeah. And so that if that's the, if that's a real answer to your question, yeah, is absolutely. I have never, I've been at the deathbed of a lot of people and every week I did it again yesterday, um, where people are like literally taking their last breaths and I've heard them say in all kinds of things, but I've never heard anybody say they wish they had spent one more day at work. Yeah. or they wish they'd done one more surgery or they wish they had made one more dollar. I've never heard anybody say anything like that. It's always, I wish I'd spent more time with my wife or I wish I had another day with my daughter. I wish I, you know, it was, it's all about people and time and things that they're missing yeah. at the end of life. It's never about stuff they wish they had done more of, yeah. you know, materially. Well, and, and to balance that out that as much as, yeah, I don't, I'm, I can't imagine somebody being on the deathbed and saying, I wish I had worked more, been away from my family more. But for those who hear that and struggle viably with, they may be at a place of survival mode financially, whatever, where you're at. I, I literally lived out the other side of that in my early entrepreneurial years of saying, I've got little kids and you know what? I need to go spend some time with them. God will take care of the mortgage. And I did that long enough to where there came a time when my wife said, honey, I love you, but I am, I'm, I can't handle this. The best thing you could do for our family right now is go make a buck. You need to go to work, dude. Yeah. You go to work. Dude. So I, I literally lived that out. It was a big Valley in my marriage yeah. and it was uh, gosh, it was 2002 and it's a big part of our own story where I went too far that way as well. So back to your statement of, uh, balance in the work and the personal life that I've lived it out on the other side as well. Um, you know, Lee on this, I, I'm still somewhat enamored by you given the four categories of people who, when tragedy hits and how they react and, uh, you, cause you also talked, you have a story in there that just hit me somewhat of, and I, I talked to my kids. I think, again, I think it was this morning. Um, and, where you find yourself, most people, they come to you and they've got a tumor, they've got a head injury, they've got something that happened to them. And then you talked about the one lady in the book who tried to kill herself and shot herself in the head. So here you are where somebody, obviously their life, living their life was such a hardship, they decided to end it. Now you're trying to put them back together. And if you do that successfully and they come out the other side with fair functionality, they now have a new set of problems to deal with. So I'm really curious because I I looked this up and, you know, CNN reports the suicide rate in the United States continues to climb with a rate in 2017. That's 33% higher than in 1999. So I assume your cases continue to increase in, in that arena. So with them, where do they generally fall in that? Is that the, is that what you see play out that now they try to enter like now it's just worse or is there, are there some of them where it helped turn them around? Uh, yeah. So you mean do, do some of the people that survived? Yeah. They, yeah. Country cover? Yeah. And I've seen that a lot actually where, cause one of the things about, um, my old pastor, Max Lucado used to say that, you know, the Christians used to say, if you commit suicide, you're destined for hell. And right. Max said he didn't believe that anybody could try to commit suicide in their right state of mind. And what I've seen is that 
so often there's something else involved. There's, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's, there's something that has changed, lowered somebody's inhibitions or made the problem at hand seem insurmountable in the moment. Um, that when they do survive and, and there's some clarity over, you know, the substance is gone and the, and the situation, the family's at the bedside saying, gosh, we never wanted this to happen. We love you or sorry, you know, that, that there's a group of people who find hope again and, wow. and they find some meaning and purpose in their life again. And then there's other people. Um, in fact, I had one patient who wrecked his car on purpose. Um, this was a long time ago. Wrecked his car on purpose, survived the wreck, told the people in the emergency room that at the first chance he was going to kill himself again. Um, got admitted to the hospital, managed to kill himself while in the hospital. Wow. The day before he was supposed to go to another long-term rehabilitation thing. Um, so there are some people who really mean it, right? And they, they've, they've completely lost any desire or intention to live. And you can't do much for those folks. But, but in my case, I see it a lot where it's the gunshot to the head, where even in the last moment when they're pulling the trigger, they, they're changing their mind and they're flinching and they shoot themselves and they shoot their eye out or something, but they don't die. Right. Those people, a lot of times when they recover, they have a whole new host of problems and disabilities, but they somehow often can find their life again too. And so our job in the OR, as I think I talked about in the book is not to make those decisions for people. Yeah. Um, it's just to do our best to save lives and, and restore function to the extent that we can. Well, hey, on that same note, I'm going to go into something that enamored me. This was page 115 in your book and uh, your quote, you said not to diminish the sadness. And I'm going to take us a little bit different direction than where you took this because it just brought, it brought up, um, well, let me read it. Not to diminish the sadness, but is it a true accident if someone is hurt because he drives under the influence or doesn't wear a seatbelt or someone falls off a balcony and breaks her neck while high on meth? An injury, an, an injury co-joined with some aspect of preventability, preventability, causation, or intentionality. And of course, your point was, you know, with GBM, back to that, it's random. There's really nothing to blame. And what was interesting to me as you wrote that is, which do you find is harder for people to deal with? Is it harder to deal with something where there is the possibility of them being culpable for it, or is it better for them to deal with it when it's like GBM and there's really nothing to point at? I think it depends on how somebody's wired, but you know, as far as dealing with, with the loss or injury of someone you care about, if you not being the patient, but, but dealing with the other person, I find it it's easier when people have something they can attach the causality to like, Oh, you know, uncle Joe got lung cancer, but he's also smoked four packs a day for 40 years. It's not really a surprise. Right. So people are sad that that uncle Joe is passing away, but they're not usually shaking their fist at God about how unfair is this? Cause there's some reason why it happened. That's and that's what I was fishing for. Yeah. Right. So, so there's an old joke. It's not really a joke, but surgeons joke about things that you shouldn't joke about. <laughs> there's, an old, there's an old kind of saying in trauma that there's very few real accidents in yeah. trauma. And, and that what that means is, like I said in the book, like people drink, they take drugs, they put themselves in dangerous situations, especially young adult males. You know, they, they go out in bars and they, they pick a fight. They do things where a little bit of wisdom on the front end would probably have prevented that accident from occurring so that there are very few true accidents, meaning that we often put ourselves in situations through bad decision-making or, or being inebriated or something else. So when, 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 it, when it's really hard is when it's your five-year-old that slips on the ice and hits her head and is in a coma, right? There's no way to explain that. I mean, there's ice there. Why was there ice there? But it wasn't her fault. And she was just walking, right? And now she's in a coma with a hole in her head because a surgeon had to operate on her. That's to me harder for people to wrap their brains around and start. That's when people start saying, why God, why did this thing happen? God, because they don't have that explanation. Oh, he was driving a hundred miles an hour and he was drunk. I can understand how that accident occurred. You, you see what I'm saying? Like it, when it's, when it's random, when it seems like the universe conspired against that person, then it seems impossible to understand and sometimes impossible to allow yourself to think a good God could, sort of, you know, ordain that thing to happen. 
Absolutely. Well, and it jumped out at me, Lee, because uh, so my business partner and and, and, uh, such a best friend, Dr. Randy James, uh, he's an MD. He's who co-hosts the True Life Show, our our other new podcast. He's a functional medicine uh, doctor. And so he sees patients who are dealing with chronic illness and disease, not finding the answers they want in traditional medicine. They come to him. And of course, the majority of the pathologies, the ailments are lifestyle related for the most part. Um, right. and, and not to point, and I know this is where you get in the slippery, slippery slope of people feel blamed. And it's, I mean, I, I'm that I'm there too. I have my own issues that I've somewhat caused myself, my ignorance. though, I didn't know. Uh, but as I've been in this world, I feel like it's my responsibility to find more and more wisdom because I am culpable for myself, but to what you said, I've never really thought about it this way. And I'll have some good conversations on this one. I see more hope in people and I sure feel it myself when I do feel some power over that. So maybe I, you know, over here I'm, I'm frustrated and, and maybe disappointed, maybe angry that, that this is really, I'm, I'm to blame somewhat, but now I've got power as opposed to the patients. And I literally have never thought about it to this point till, till right now, Lee. And I'm glad I asked the question, the patients who really don't accept any culpability and any power in it are generally the ones who do not get better. That's right. It's, that's a big medicine right there. It is. And, you know, even in this, even in the case of a fatal diagnosis, right, yeah. there's a huge difference in quality of life and people, in fact, to back up a little bit, because if you haven't read the book, I mean, the, the, the whole notion and the premise of this is it got to me on a spiritual level when I started taking care of these patients when I got out of my training and I would say, this guy's hosed. And I would look at the scan. So that's not a very medical term, but <laughs> I would look at a scan and I would see that glioblastoma. And even before we biopsied, I knew what it was. And I knew what was going to happen. I knew what the OR was going to look like. I knew what your post-op recovery period was going to look like. I, I could see your wife's face in my mind when I told you what the diagnosis was. And I could see how, you know, how long your radiation and chemotherapy was going to take. And I could see when your hair would start falling out. And I knew about when you were coming back to my office and you were thinking about going into hospice. And I, and I could just project all that out because it was so reproducible with this particular disease. And so I started having this problem because I knew from neuroscience that people do better. They live longer. They have fewer infections. They spend less time in the hospital. They take less pain medicine when they hope. Right. And as a Christian, I'm supposed to believe, you know, James five says, if if the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much and God will heal your diseases and, and God will you know remove all your afflictions and all these things that the Bible says that are promises. But here we have a disease that he always says no to. So how am I supposed to be a good doctor for this patient? When I know that they're going to, even if they don't survive, they're going to have a better quality of life and their marriage is going to stay together better and their kids are going to remember them better if they fight it and if they hold their hope up and all those things. How am I supposed to do that and be honest with them when at the same time I know they're they're not going to make it, Yeah, they're not going to survive this, and then at the same time tell them I'm praying for them when I already know that God's going to say no to that prayer if I'm if the target I'm shooting at is survival. Yeah. Right. So I got to that place where I, I, I was in such a conundrum that I didn't know what to do with myself. And so the, the cop out for me was that I sort of, um, Hey, can I, can I pause for just one second? Yep. I'm, sorry, I'm getting a call. I'm going to just pause you for one second. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, of course we'll edit that out, but there you go. I'm, I'll leave this in there, folks. There's the candidness of the doctor on call as <laughs> we had to pause as you got a call from the ER. Um, what, what, an, hit their head. Yeah. what an amazing, what an amazing life, you know, in literal prayers where here we are praying to God, I'll admit that after all these years, sometimes I find myself unsure of what to say to you, God in the moment. And I know you talk about this in the book, but I, as our, as everyone's faith evolves, yeah, how do you find yourself sometimes balancing or even as you formulate your prayers when you have somebody who has something where you, you, you've seen the end of them, you know, that they're by, by every, you know, as much as you have experienced, they're going to die. And yet, are you praying for still praying that God, you can heal and hopefully that you, you will do that, but then also cashing that with praying that they will just deal with it well. Yeah. That's really what's, what's changed the most in my prayer life after 
losing a child and after 20 years of working around, you know, the sickest people in the world really is coming to that understanding that glioblastoma is not in fact, mankind's deadliest disease, you know, hopelessness is. And so coming to this idea that, that the most important thing for God to give me or you or anybody else when we're in hard times is the, the ability to walk through that and carry ourselves well and continue to live while we're living, even if we're dying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your, your own faith. Uh, I mean, today, would you say that in Lee Warren's faith that you doubt less or you have come to be more at peace with the grappling of your doubts? I think that's a good way to say it. I was going to say, no, I definitely don't doubt less because I still do. Um, I think the best advice anybody ever gave me was Philip Yancey said, you know, um, the Bible's full of doubters and it's okay with God. And this, and, and, you know, and, and I wrote about Chaplain John in the book, in the bio, in the book talking about how one of the reasons he believes in God is that we have a Bible full of stories of people who are allowed to express their doubts to him. Hmm. Like if a person wrote that book, they would write it more perfectly no, you, you, you're not allowed to doubt me. You have to, you know, you have to follow me completely or I'm going to smite you. That that's how a human would write that story. Right. Absolutely. For God to, yeah. But for God to say, Hey Lee, you're a broken guy and you've been through a lot of hard things and there's going to be some things that challenge you. And when they do what, I don't want you to never waver. I want you to talk to me. Hmm. Right. And that's where I got to where, what God really wanted from me in that, was to say, God, I will never understand why this happened to my son. And in fact, as I told in the story, like we, we don't even still know what happened yeah. and we can't, we, we never will know what happened unless somebody comes forward and tells us like, well, we'll never know. And so I had to come to peace with this idea that one of my children was taken from me and I can't know why. And I can't ever expect to know why. And I'm going to have to still live. And my life still has to have some meaning and I, and I said, you know, if I can't make my life something that Mitch would be proud of, then I might as well quit because it's got to mean something or his life was really, you know, a tragedy. And I don't want my son's life to have been a tragedy. I want it to be a, a victory, right? Yeah. And so um, I think what, what my faith looks like now is I trust the fact that even when I'm doubting, I will again find faith. Because I know that I've been in the darkest place there is. And even when I couldn't see light, you know, Lisa and I, we even talked about it a few times. We can't see it, but it's enough to just know that you don't have to, you don't have to see the sunrise yet. But if you just can survive the night, it will come back. You have to believe that the sun is still out there. Right. And that's how God shows himself over time. When you're in the hardest thing that happens, if you can just hold on and tell him what you're feeling, he always somehow manages to, lift you up a little bit and make it a little bit better. Send somebody along to put their arm around you at just the right time or, or pop a scripture into your mind that, you know, that's one of those tools, by the way, yeah. that I taught my kids. We talked about instruments for self brain surgery. One of yeah. them is have a whole bunch of scripture and a whole bunch of good books and, and good things in your heart that will pop out when you're under pressure. Yeah. Right. That, that if you've got some scripture in there, if you, if you have some promises that you know that pop back up. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I think is is He says, "Hey, Kevin, I am going to be close to you when this hard thing happens." Yeah. But if you don't have, if you haven't read the promises and you haven't stuffed them in there, it's hard for them to come back out when you need them. Yeah. I'll I'll be sharing that with my family tonight on the <laughs> dinner table because my wife has my kids, my my five youngest, memorizing the first chapter of James. Uh, right now. So at uh, Advent last night, they, they recited what they know. And that's her perspective with that is having the implanted word of God. We, you know, it's, there's so many poignant aspects of your message of your story that stood out to me. Uh, Too many for me to say that there was one that was paramount, but this one right here that I want us to land on, you shared a perspective that you came to about story that in movies and books that we don't focus so much on the trials, the characters face, or even whether they survive them, we're moved by and remember the characters 
who face those trials well, who hold up under the strain and live or die true to themselves or their calling. That's right out of the book. And I thought about myself, Lee, and I'm, I am so task oriented. I focus on the end result and I'm not rare in that, you know, I'm mission focused in that, but here you are saying that if I were a movie, if I think about today, my day tomorrow as a movie, people are watching what they're mostly interested in because it resonated so much with me. You're totally right. Is how am I coping with it along the way? Last night we watched a wonderful life. I watch it every Christmas And that is, as I was reviewing these notes today and thinking about that, that is the movie. How many people remember the debacle that George Bailey got in and what really happened at the end? They don't, they're focused on the in between and his trial in there. And he was obviously not one of your guys. He wasn't number four on your list of just taking the tragedy and the trauma uh, easily or, or well, uh, he dove way down and that was just convicting. And for you to come to that is, you know, for folks, I mean, of course I'm going to be pushing you go, go get the book. This is, as I said in the intro, it's a, it's one, I I don't know if I've ever read a, what I'm going to put in the self-help category book or personal development, read one that had me that enraptured. I was reading it like a novel. I wanted to see what happened next. And yet it impacted me so deeply, Lee. Uh, And that right there may be the one that's the most paramount to me. We're in a spectator culture. We're all on screens watching stories. We're enamored. I think sometimes we're enamored by them even more because we're not living big stories ourselves as the culture evolves. And so we're watching the stories. And to hear that, hear you come to that, uh, to me was, yeah, again, it, it was one of the most impacting things that I read about in the book that made me feel incredibly accountable to not the results that I'm getting, not the paycheck I'm bringing home, not the event I'm doing with my kids or the experience I'm taking my family on or or whatever it is, but it's just on how did I, would I be proud of the movie that I walked out today in the mundane aspect of life or through the trauma or tragedy? Right. That, you know, that, that came, it's interesting to me that I knew in my heart, I was supposed to write, I've seen the interview. Um, I told this story too, you know, and I ended up writing my first book about the Iraq war and my experiences there as a, as a trauma surgeon there first, because I sort of copped out. It's easier for me to write a tell all of what it was like to be in the war than it was, than it was to write about faith and doubt. Mm -hmm. But what happened was as I prepared to write that book, no place to hide, um, I learned about telling stories. I read all those books and Robert McKee and all, and all the books about telling stories and learning how to write. And then it dawned on me as I was living out, walking among all these people with brain tumors. And after we lost our son, especially like, like God put all that stuff about story in my place. So I could see it for what it is when I was living out mine, like what kind of story would Mitch want me to tell with the days of my life after he passed away. Mm. Right. Because you, you want to think about, as you're living, you want to think about what your grandkids are going to say about you, right? How much money did grandpa make? You don't, want the, you don't care about that. You care about, man, my grandfather was a hero. He was my, he was my hero. He was the, the guy that showed me how to be a good man, right? You want those kinds of things to be part of your story, not just how much money you made or how, how many podcast downloads you had or all yeah. those things, right? You want it to be about the story that your life told and how you held up through the various trials. As an aside, you talked about James one while ago, yeah. and that's James one is one of those. It's a bamboo splinter under my fingernail <laughs> when I was going through a hard thing because yeah. you, if you believe, if you decide that you're going to believe the words so that you can claim the good ones and not have to reject the hard ones, if you decide you're going to believe them, then you run into James one and it says, "Consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance." Right, yeah. and you say. Why'd you put that in there? Like, why'd you, why'd you do that to me, God? Like, why do you tell me I've got to think about some way to find joy out of this? It seems awfully cruel sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's another one of those things like Romans eight twenty eight that comes down to perspective. And that you can't get perspective without time and space from the thing that you're going through. And that's why you never ought to pick up the gun and end it. You ought to go through it because if you believe that God's going to, 
produce something good through this, this event in your life, or that God's going to turn you into some better version of yourself through these trials or help somebody else through it, then you fail if you end it without going through it. Right. So you've got to put yourself through what Isaiah called the furnace of suffering. You've got to let him refine you in that way, or you can't get to that place where you have that backwards perspective to say, you know what, you were right. Like I did grow through that. And it was the worst thing and the worst time, but I'm all of a sudden I'm around all these broken people and they don't maybe have the background or the tools or the, the things that I have, the perspective that I have, and I can put my arm around them and I can be who pastor John was for me. And I can say, Hey, might not feel like it right now, but you're going to get through this. Yeah. And so for me, that was James one was one of those triggering, like, like I was like really, but, it, but it's true. It comes out to be true. Yeah. If you can just walk through it long enough to get that perspective on it. Lee, I'm just, I'm grateful um, for what you've done here. Uh, I have to point out, maybe I'll add it to the intro that you know, you really pursued and you talk about this in the book, the craft of writing and in the realm of the types of books that I generally read and that I bring the guests, uh, the authors who I bring on the show, I, I can't say that in the past five years of doing this that I have read a book that was uh, both as impacting and enthralling to read. So just... Um, just so impressed and grateful that I got a hold of it. I'm going to thank your agency again uh, for bringing you, but thanks for taking the time. Thank you for doing what you do. I hope I can get as many people as possible to read this book and to digest this message. Thank you. It's been a real honor to be with you today and I appreciate the time. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Well, friends, I know that was a deep show, but I hope you were moved as much as I have been. I know I always recommend my guest books, but um, and I won't say this is better than any other, but I will say uh, what I did at the top of the show. There aren't many books that have ever been this engaging page turners and packed with such a deep impacting message. Uh, again, you can get, I've seen the end of you wherever you get books. You can pre-order, pre, pre-order it now as it comes out January 7th, 2019 uh, and connect with Dr. Warren at WLeeWarrenMD.com and make sure you check out the Dr. Lee Warren podcast. Well, coming up in episode 744, does your work interest you? Uh, should your work truly interest you? What are you missing if it does not? Though, as you'll hear in the show, maybe interest in your work is not the absolute end all, but here's a question I pose to the Ziegler audience. Do you find your work to be interesting? Yes or no. And how much weight on your work fulfillment does this have? The question came from a short message. We're going to hear from Zig Ziegler where he cited a survey conducted about the workplace using what and are asking what employees wanted. Managers said, well, they wanted good wages, job security, promotions. The workers, however, responded and with number one, interesting work. Uh, so there's no commentary I could give that would be as valuable as hearing what you, the audience, responded with. So I think you'll enjoy the show. Tom Ziegler, join me as we talk through all the comments. Till then, thank you, as always, for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <laughs> <laughs>